Every day we hustling at Pilots and Pictards Podcast. Welcome to the Pilots and Pictards Podcast. This is Drew. I'm the pragmatic and bleeding heart cyclops of this podcast. I'm Jimbo, the anti-millennial, non-conforming, existentialist, pilot critic, and Kenya the podcast. Liz, mother of cat, the spark plug, is out for this week. And I'm the magically undefeated Miss Mo, master of spoilers and lover of nobos. And this is the podcast with nothing much ado about aircrafts or flying objects, and potentially everything ado with the first episode of a filmic series. In our audience, for all you white guys that listen to podcasts, our audience is for our future daughters. So have that lens in mind. Baby Jamie, a uh, little messy, uh, little Emma. Here's a disclaimer. Petard is a word. It's a real word. And petards are bombs. Look it up, read your Shakespeare, or uh, grab your, you know, pay attention to your Shakespeare poster in your room, because I'm sure you're a really good reader. Uh, Palatin Petards is a proud member of the But Why Though podcast community. And we'd like to thank today's sponsor, Public Libraries, for this ad-free listening. Here's a real quick fuck you to Crooked Media for your creepy piece of shit ads. And here's a quick fuck you to Dennis Miller. According to Twitter, you doubled down on hating comics. All right, thanks for taking that stand, you brave baby boomer you. We're very proud that you got up the courage to, you know, get out there and share your truth. So contact us to sponsor a show or slander a rival. If you enjoyed today's ad-free listening, then you owe us. We could stack never-ending crooked ads. We could create sob stories as to why we need your money, but we don't. Repay your debt by leaving us an iTunes review. Go on iTunes, leave us a review, or just, you know, give us a rating. Or, if you've already given us that ratings, thank you. Tell someone else about our podcast to pay your debt. Welcome back, listeners, to part two of our analysis of the pilot episode of The Bodyguard, titled Episode 1, Clever. If you would like a spoiler-free evaluation, look at our previous released episode or click in the show notes. It's in the show notes as well. Extended, spoiler-ridden Spoilers! Just boning down. Mo is out the cage. If you talking about some bone downing, busting down the walls. If you want this this series spoiler free, you need to finish watching it before you continue listening. Yes, you've been warned. You've been warned, and so and I also might be racist. I don't know. <laughs> no prejudice. Prejudice. Bigotry. All right, so part two is our filmic analysis and interpretation of the story, the plot, the characters. We're definitely going to get to that. We talked about the conflict. We're going to get to that as well. But we're going to start off, as always, with our Crab Man Award. This goes to a character with a small role giving large contributions to the story or our viewing pleasure. Mo, do you have a Crab Man? I'm going to say the lady who watched David's kids on the train. She doesn't have a major part, but she holds down the fort for David to go do his little sleuth work, which was pivotal to building his character and to building the suspense and is what leads to him even landing in the position of bodyguard was because of his heroic efforts on that train. And if homegirl had been shady or just been like, um... No, I don't want to watch your kids because I want to read my book and not care about losing your children. Because that's a lot of responsibility to ask for of a stranger. That also. that's a lot, yeah. Like, would either of you ask? I mean, his kids were sleeping and they were probably going to stay asleep. But would either of you just leave your kids with a stranger unattended? Yeah, uh, I want to say no, but I also want to say if there's a terrorist with a bomb in a bathroom, that might be extenuating circumstances. <laughs> True. True. I guess I would mostly want to. This might be a dangling thread, how you would feel in general about leaving your children with strangers. Mo, go down to my literary analysis of black characters. I have questions. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think you give your kids to most strangers, they're going to bring them back real quick. So I'm not too worried about that. <laughs> I did hold a lady's baby on the airplane ride back from South Africa while she went in the bathroom. Oh. So okay. I was just like, do you want to hold her? She was like, yes. But on a plane, like you have nowhere to go. Could you not say the same thing about a train? Not really, because you could go and, like, hide somewhere with there's, the kids. I mean, there's more space on the train, but, the, I mean, there's cameras everywhere, dude. You're not going to be able okay, to see this kid it was very low easily. Risk. But 
beyond besides the point, I just thought she played a pretty good influence on that whole scene, which I liked that scene, so I pick her. Yeah, she she moves the plot very well. That that's a that's a good crab lady. Crab sitter? A crab sitter. Could be our first it might be our first crab sitter. I really wish I said crab mom last week. We did say crab mom. Well, you said it after me, but I wish I had said it when I know. Yeah, that's that's tough, Mo. Next and time I, I said it first this it. time too. So next time, you know, think about it. Yeah, sorry, crab sitter. Yeah, we got to move on. We're spending too much time on crabs. So I think <laughs> Vic's new boyfriend, that's not even on screen, does a lot to develop that that uh, family dynamics that Drew liked so much. Here's mine, and again, this kind of comes back to me watching it the second time and noticing things. Did you guys notice? Or I mean, I, you watched further than I did, but I didn't catch the first time I watched this show that guy who like blocks the house the home secretary from like going into the building and like bitches her out and stuff. That's not only the, like the parliament whip, that's her ex-husband. Yes. I missed that the first watching as well. I did not know who, who that guy was. I caught it the second watching. Um, and then when David's like a mixed race, sir, or something like that, I was like, (laughs) that was probably the funniest thing that I think happened in the entire pilot. So (laughs) that was a nice setup. And that maybe my second, maybe my first or second favorite scene in the whole episode so that's not a lot of screen time but that's a great interaction a great way to show us about david or about bud being really good at his job and thinking on his feet and also um it kind of helps to define uh the home secretary too sorry mo i'm gonna switch mine and i'm gonna go to drew's side i agree that the crab ex-husband is a crab man for sure because he shows that David is really good at his job, the way he diffuses that whole problem and he gets her inside. Like that's what he needs. He needs her to go inside the building. And when he does his little mixed race comment takes away that, that defiance and it gives her a chance to walk inside and it diffuses the whole situation. And I'll go ahead and announce it so we can move on. Crab man award by split decision is going to the ex-husband. All right, Hoisters, now we're going to move into our MVP. For any new listeners, this is the most valuable part of the pilot. It can be anything on or off screen. Looks like Drew and I have the same MVP. So Richard Madden did win a Golden Globe for his portrayal, and it's well-deserved. This show is a little bit reminiscent of you because it's like one... Of what? You. The show. Oh, yes. You. Okay, sorry. Yes, yes that's you. confusing. We're that's still good. ripping on that shit. Because it's kind of one actor or one person kind of carrying the load of the narr- of the narrative. And, um, you know, he does a really good job. And I think the best thing that he does is he plays um, restrained emotion very well. You know, like when he can't deal with a situation or when he's very upset, he does a really good job. Like there's a lot of tension in his neck and in his face. And I don't, I don't know how you teach that. You know, he must just like stare at his own face in a mirror for like hours to be like, what is the best way for me to look incredibly repressed? I don't think you can be a good actor and not have to learn that at some point. Yeah. Or does Richard Madden act like David Budd at all on Game of Thrones? No. Okay, that very is Very awesome. different performances and very different accents as well. I'm going to give my MVP to Richard Madden because I was going to give it to David Budd. You know, we talked about Dexter and Michael C. Hall. Michael C. Hall just always acts like Dexter or the guy from six feet under or whatever. Like he doesn't, he's not really that good of an actor. I would, this is definitely a different type of performance for Richard Madden. He doesn't like, I don't see, I don't see a lot of similarities between the King in the North and David Budd. Uh, mostly because on game of Thrones, um, he is kind of a passionate character. You know, he like leads with his heart, you know, he makes some gut decisions. Not all of them are the best, but it kind of seems like in the bodyguard, He's playing a very restrained character. So I would say this is a really good indication of his range as an actor. Yeah, I think he did great. And he's actually, his Golden Globe win was the whole reason I even had the show on my radar. Coming from such a big role like Game of Thrones to be able to establish yourself as something different and getting people to see you as something different, you have to be really talented. Um, and he did that. So as David. And David's just great. And he's so vulnerable and strong at the same time. He's definitely conflicted. Yes. 
which is perfect because now we're going to dive deeper into these literary analysis. And so what's, what's the conflict? So Drew has not seen the whole series. So Drew, what, what's the conflict based off the pilot? What is the conflict? Based off the pilot. So, I mean, there's, there's like, whatever we've all been in like seventh grade English and it's like man versus man, man versus beast, man versus self. This feels like man versus self. Cause it feels like David is struggling with, it seems like David is good at his job and his job is to assess risk and take action. You know, it doesn't seem like he likes the person that he's protecting, doesn't agree with her viewpoint. And yeah, it's taken it extremely personally because it seems like, you know, his viewpoint or like her job affected his life. So, you know, I think that this is a man versus self, but that's still just a guess. Based off the pilot, I would I would agree with you, Drew. It seems like the the you know man versus self or you know David in his internal conflict is the the most apparent conflict. At, le- at least the way this show set up, it's not quite enough to really be like a real deep conflict to uphold a whole series. But yeah, I mean, it's just an unclear conflict. I mean, that's the thing. Like, not every show. I don't know. Not every. Sh- I don't. Does the story need a conflict? Yes, that's that's what a story is. Does our town have a conflict? Does what? Our town, Oscar Wilde. I don't feel like that story is a conflict. Yeah, I mean that's like story one hundred and one, man. No conflict, there's no story. I mean, I mean, we talked about this before, Mo. Mo, what do you think? What's what's the conflict based off the first episode? I think that a lot of conflicts are revealed in the pilot. I think there's the conflict of David trying to overcome his PTSD and win his family back. I think there's the conflict. From from his Google search on the Home Secretary, there's the conflict of that conflict's revealed and then sealed when he asks her, um, "Did you mean what you said today about the Middle East?" And she said, "I need you to protect me, not vote for me, or something." So that that like develops the conflict between himself and the person he's sworn to protect. Yeah, but that's still like his internal conflict. So not, you know, that's that's kind of that's kind of what Drew was was uh, saying. If anyone watches the whole series, the conflict is who are the terrorists and who, spoiler, super spoiler, and who kills the politician Julia, uh, what's her last name? Whatever her name is, McElroy or whatever. So like, yeah, so so she's killed. And that's those are the main conflicts of the series. Drew, did you want that spoiler? That was a deep, that was a big one. It's fine. I've only watched up to the point where they boned down. So these conflicts aren't revealed until the third and fourth episode. But why can't the conf- why can't there be conflict between the secretary and David without his hate for her being open? There can, but that's not the series conflict. That's my point. So my I guess my argument is that a pilot should should identify a deep conflict to keep the viewer sustained for the series. And if you're unsure what the conflict is, I feel like that's a problem. That's a new idea that we're toying with because the thing is we've talked about what defines a good pilot before. And I think what we've talked about most is setting up a world, setting up characters, and then getting you to watch the next episode, which I think that at least that's been my definition. That's what the bodyguard does. Yeah, but why would you watch another episode if there's no conflict or if you're unsure what the conflict is? Why did you watch the second episode of Bodyguard, dude? You watched it the whole way through. I did, but not because because I understood what the conflict was. Well, then you shouldn't say that you need a conflict because you didn't understand the conflict in the first episode and you still watched six of them. We talked about it in the first part. I said there wasn't there was it was it was unclear. If this pilot had a clear conflict, it would have been a lot higher up the list. Maybe it was still wildly popular. But if you're saying that the series conflict is figuring out who the terrorists are, I that's what the first twenty minutes does. I know, but as a viewer, you have no idea that it's going to come back to that. He gets completely reassigned. Almost no more mention besides him just them talking about him saving the people on the train in in the pilot you mean in in the pilot yes is he was he working so you, with them i see is that the spoiler you'll have to watch dude no. you'll have to watch Thanks, there's another spoiler we could, we could <laughs> give you but let's let's let drew like enjoy whatever it. i mean i guess i get what you're saying where you think that the terrorist conflict ends when that scene is yes. resolved and then when the pilot ends you think oh is this just gonna be about Maybe a bodyguard who wants to kill this woman or 
Like that becomes what you think the plot is. Yeah, because he has that conversation with his friend and his friend was like, I would That's kill fair. them if I had. Yeah. So right. I think, uh, I mean, I think I I talked about a big conflict a few weeks ago as well as, is maybe I guess it was Westworld. I probably brought it up. Yeah. I know. I see what you're saying. And I, I can agree with that. You watched all of Westworld too. Yeah, I had to interpret it for a zero. All right. I'm not saying like it's a mandatory that you have to have it, but I'm just saying Westworld would have been a better pilot if it would have had that. Like if, if we look at our, our top 10 pilots, there's no ambiguity about what the conflicts are. That's true. Yeah. So Drew had a question. Is David a good father? We talked about this a little bit. What do you guys think? About him leaving his kids with a stranger. Or in general. I think he's a good dad. From what what Why? the pilot shows. He's not at home. He shows up at his separated wife's house without saying anything. Because he's going through shit. He's not perfect. He's a flawed human being. But I think he loves his kids. And I think he wants more than anything to, is to have his family together. And I think it kills him that they're not together. And it's because of him. Yeah, that doesn't make him a good father. But I think it makes him a good father because he wants to fix it somehow. If he wasn't a good father, he would just like drink himself to death and forget he even had kids to be responsible for. And he would have been drunk around the kids. But I, I, don't, I don't think he ever like. That would make him an absolutely terrible father. I guess he's not. So he's not an absolutely terrible father. Fine. But I, th- I think that question's not quite a fair question as well. So, I mean, I. I'm I'm kind of siding with Mo. I don't think there's any evidence that he's a good father in the pilot. The fact that he's really, really good at his job tells a lot about his character. And I think the reason why he looks like a questionable father is because his life is a mess, just like what Mo said. Like, this dude's life is a disaster. And there's a lot of hints as to why. He's seems like he's an alcoholic, and he only calls his wife when he's wasted. Mm-hmm. And has the kids go stay with other people so she can have a night to herself. She doesn't even ask him like if, if he can have the kids. So, I mean like he's away from the family. That's a good point. Yeah. He's distant. No, I think she did that. So he wouldn't know she was having a guy. That's not a good sign either, Mo. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, I think his love for his kids, I mean, there's no question there, but I, I don't think loving your kids is enough to be considered a good parent. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's all about, I mean, that's a philosophical question is like, what's more important, um, like end results or intentions? That's two different trains of philosophic thought. Mo, you seem to be identifying yourself as a Kantian moralist. A Kantian moralist? Yes. It, it, it's a guy, a German guy. Totally. So so what's, he was so what's your stance, Drew? Um, based on the conversation we've had, I don't think that there's... I'm kind of with Jimbo, like all the intentions in the world don't make you a good parent. Like I think actions do, you know? Um, And so I don't think there's a lot of evidence that he is a good father, but I also don't necessarily think that makes him a bad father too. So I think maybe, maybe more episodes. We don't know what kind of father he was before the war either. Yeah. Not a good one. Like military people are not good fathers. They're away from their families so much. Proximity is helpful. Yeah, I guess that's true. I get what you're saying, like being around, but providing for them. Just to connect with my military experience, most of the people I served with, I would not consider all that good appearance. And granted, I don't know a whole lot of information, but I know a lot of them liked being away from their families. And that's not a good sign either. They weren't like waiting, counting the days to... It's more like the opposite. Like they were counting the days to go on deployment. <laughs> wow. Now this this is a this is a fairly small sample size, but yeah. And I think also the military encourages people to get married for financial incentive and not necessarily. So a lot of relationships are started for the wrong reasons. Well, that does come up when they, like there's a conflict occurs between David and his ex, and he just says like whatever like we'll stay married so you can keep the pension or something yeah it was he mentioned something like that where i have heard that being a theme in when people get married even to other military people well i don't want to compare the two things but there's a word i'm looking for where it's like what's the word for when people get too used to being in prison stockholm syndrome 
Not, no, it's when you like love your kidnapper. Um, <laughs> not recidivism, well, right? When people just always go back. No, it's to when jail. you go back, but it's it's more. There's like, a term for it, but yeah, it's like your culture, like the way that you learn how things operate, are more comfortable for you. And so sometimes people like don't want to get out because they understand how things work in that environment. And then once you get, yeah, and then once you go out to the real world, you know, things are way more complicated. I wish I knew the word for that because I'm. Well, I got a, a device in front of you that could look it up. I'm trying easily. right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it for, I would say I definitely witnessed a lot of people in the military that stayed in just because like they didn't want to take the risk of, of going out in the world and finding a job or finding a college or it's like, I mean, the military life is potentially the easiest life you could have if you're okay with not having personal freedom. I mean, you literally can live your whole life without ever thinking because there's always someone to think for you. But then you also have to learn how to use a gun. It's really easy. And, target practice and like i mean you don't i mean it's not that hard it's it's a lot easier than life <laughs> well i can't find the word for it but maybe one of our listeners can help there's a term and we're kind of fitz, fitz will find it yeah that was almost dangling thready right there i think we can move on okay to the stage mo we have the stormy daniels dangling threads of interest and for any new listeners these are themes related to the show and we're not necessarily going to talk about the shows or characters or we're going to try not to drew do we have very briefly do we have any stormy news very very brief stormy did attend the avn adult vi- uh video news it's the uh oscars for porn so she attended oh did she win i don't know if she was up for anything i don't oh, know okay. if she performed this year she's just like holding it down for yeah we have a couple dangling threads here. I think they're both worth talking about, but uh, go ahead, Drew. We'll start with yours. Sure. So the reason I recommended The Best and the Brightest um, by David Halberstam is it's a book about the advisors who brought America to the Vietnam War. And the reason it's called The Best and the Brightest is because they all went to Harvard. They all went to Yale. They all went to Wharton. They all were like the cream of the crop, the smartest possible people it's when you still had people going to government service, you know, like it wasn't as cynical because it was in the early 70s. Um, kind of the narrative thread of the text is that even with the smartest possible people you could have in the room, they still made huge mistakes that cost the lives of tens of thousands of American soldiers and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Vietnamese and Cambodians. So... That kind of struck me when the Home Secretary character was talking about making those tough decisions because, you know, at the end of the day, politicians and governments are people, you know, and like someone is making a decision to send another human being to war. And so I really thought about the human cost of war when they were having those discussions. And, you know, Bud definitely represents the boots on the ground, but the Home Secretary represents the person who sends them. So what did you guys think about those two worlds meeting in the show? I found it to be a really interesting perspective because I always associate people that join the military and to be really patriotic, even after the fact. Do you know what I mean? So, and I, I guess I was like attributing that dynamic to what's happening in our country now, where I think military people are conservative. And his, the bodyguard's thoughts on war were actually pretty progressive. I didn't, I just didn't expect that from him. Like he was siding with a more liberal type of thinking and it went against what I usually think military people believe. And I'm, and that's me generalizing. I know not everybody who ever, you know, joined the military agrees with only conservative views, but. What about you, Jimbo? What was the original question? I I was just going to say from from what Mo said, I think most people would agree that we should have never went to Iraq or Afghanistan, even if they're conservative. But I th- I think more conservative think ideals. So? Uh, yes, I do. I don't. I can't think of anyone that thinks it was a good idea that I served with. Now, there's a 
whether we should stay there is a completely different issue. I would say that leaving Iraq was, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious now, um, a very bad idea, but, and I, and I think, and I would say more like liberal media is the reason we left because yeah. that, you know, in, which was, you're already there. So your options are leave or stay. This is like tying in both your dangling threads, right? Like the human cost of war, where the sacrifice of a few can save the many because this spiraled into the like a total crisis in the Middle East in general, where, yeah, maybe kind of keeping the crisis in one place, having invaded, it just spread the crisis. There was this thing, and I, I may have talked about it before on the podcast, but but there was this display out of my college and what they did was they they put like a red a, a little red flag in the grass for every american that lost his life and then they put a little white flag in the grass and it represented like a hundred iraqis and i went and looked at it from the top of our library and the whole field was all white and the only little tiny patch was red you very rarely hear people argue about the loss of iraqis it's usually always the loss of American lives and like that display, I wish I would have taken a photo of it and I wish I would have, you know, had it somewhere to share because it was just so mind, you know, like blowing as far as, you know, the real cost of the war is not the American lives. It's the Iraqi lives and lifestyles and just, I mean, even today, like it's, it's so crazy. That's definitely true. Uh, Jimbo, what did you want to talk about with the dangling thread? And this was more of a series topic and theme, but the privacy act and in, in, in the UK, they have the RIPA, and it is the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act. Yes, yeah, so pretty, and this this uh, was put in to play in 2000. Actually, it was pre 9 11, so they were already onto this. That CCTV footage is crazy. Mm-hmm. And there's and there's been some additions. So the most recent addition was in 2016. So you can kind of see where this this show was probably getting some of its content from as well. But it's you know it's just this idea that the government is constantly gaining more power to provide safety and security for the people. And so that's kind of, I guess the opposite of the cost of war, but like the cost of security is your freedom and your privacy worth the public's safety and security. That's, that's what Benjamin Franklin wants to know, or actually that's not what he wants to know. Cause he was pretty definitive on that. You know, those who would trade, a little bit of freedom for a little bit of security deserve neither the freedom nor the security. I would disagree with them. I think um, I would gladly give some of my, some of my uh, privacy for more security. I mean, it's kind of a mute point in the United States because now we know that the NSA is looking at and listening to every single thing we say. They, I mean, but they don't have to be, I mean, they could not be, but they are. Would you rather them not? I mean, yeah, I mean they're not they're they're not supposed to by constitutional law like they're not supposed to be surveilling American citizens. They're supposed to be surveilling international um, frequencies and international communications only. Based off of a document that was, you know, so antiquated that it's hard to take serious. People take the First and Second Amendment pretty seriously. Yeah, they're called idiots. So I mean, like here's my point: there was no internet. There was no, you know, there was no way for any organization or, you know, to carry out terrorist attacks and things like they can today. I mean, like, you know, it's just a completely different world. I mean, yeah, but I do think the government knew what the direction technology was going. In 1776? Oh, no. I thought you meant meant like when Homeland Security was established and all that stuff. Okay. I get the thing, you know, you have like, you have like a September 11 attack and next thing you know, the government is, is getting more power. And I get it why that like scares people. And there's a bunch of articles online that are really negative towards the surveillance of, of the public. But I mean, I think if you really look at the evidence and you really look at what they're surveying, there's, if, if you're not doing anything wrong, you're fine. There's a lot of people on the no fly list that that does not apply to. Right. I read this really traumatizing article in the New Yorker about a older Muslim man in Florida who it was like a total he said, she said situation. And he was jailed for years. And I think he's, I don't want to, I want to say he either died in prison or was like dying in prison 
at that time when I read that article. And that was like three or four years ago. And there's a lot of, and there's another documentary called Dark Taxi or something, Dark Side Taxi. And it was about a taxi driver who was accused of, of being a terrorist and he wasn't based on the, these, this data that they're collecting. And he went, he went to Guantanamo. So I think there is a cost to that. It's not perfect, but yeah, there, yeah, there is a cost. I agree. It's, I mean, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's, you know, they're not targeting white people. They're not targeting people. You know what I mean? It's like, it's built to incarcerate or to accuse people that are Muslim. Yeah. Are Muslim or are whatever. I don't agree with the discrimination of, of Muslims, but I am completely fine with the government listening and watching us if if they think we're a threat. They think those people are a threat. There's a ton of people on the no-fly list who just have the same spelling as people and like it totally fucks up their lives. Like Mo was saying, puts them on lists, like it disrupts their things and it also brings undue attention to them and harassment. So you would prefer no watching of yeah, I would prefer for the FBI to do it because that's their fucking job. Okay, so you're still preferring someone to watch people. With warrants, you know, with due process. That's not what the NSA is doing. That's not what the no-fly list is. Okay, well, then I don't know what the N- the NSA is doing. I'm referring to these privacy acts that are like RIPA. I mean, it's it's not a law anywhere. It's just we found out when Edward Snowden, you know, dumped a whole bunch of files that the NSA has been surveilling the United States since, yeah, right around 2003. All right. So what's your point on that one? Uh, that it's that the FBI surveilling people based on evidence is not the same thing as the NSA, just like pulling a ton of data down, pulling everyone's information in, sifting through it and finding things that they may or may not think is true. You're looking it up to see if I'm telling the truth. I mean, yeah, it's uh, this would be impossible to look up right now, but yeah. I'm okay with an agency like the NSA looking at people, whether like I'm not okay with people just being discriminated against. The two things are happening at the same time concurrently because one is the result of the other. It's been it's been so you said 2003 Drew, right? It's coming on over 15 years of this and you would think they would have kind of gone back and perfected the way they're processing their data, but they're not. There's still like bias in there. So that's my issue with it. I find it hard to believe that NSA doesn't have any checks and balances, but I don't know what I'm talking about. So you would be surprised and I would, I can send you some stuff. The NSA has very few checks and balances. Okay. So I'm not, I don't like that, I guess. Um, Watch the Snowden documentaries. I mean, yeah, the Snowden's such a weird issue. Yeah, people have strong feelings about him. Yeah, and propaganda documentaries are so biased that it's hard to it's hard to really learn anything from them. Citizen Four, it won it won um, an Oscar or something, or a Golden Globe. It like won at the awards. I mean, all documentaries are biased because all human vision and storytelling is biased. But um, Jimbo, there's a very 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 cool graphic novel called Verax. Um, that I think that you should read. Um, it talks a lot about the surveillance state, the growth of the surveillance state, and how Edward Snowden's story kind of intersects. All right, here, let's toss that in the petardar. Oh, uh, okay, I will. All right, Hoysters, so I think we, you know, you know, we dangled those. Now, now we're just... Uh... Wait, I got one more. I got one more. You have one more? Yeah, real quick one. This is, this is a snap dangle, okay? A lot of entertainment news outlets thought the bodyguard was a stealth, um, was a stealth audition for, sorry, was a stealth audition for Richard Madden as the next 007. Do you buy Richard Madden as Bond, James Bond? Totally. Jimbo. I don't care. I hate James Bond movies. They're so stupid. All right. They they like it because it's a return to the Scotsman. Because Sean Connery. I thought Idris Elba was going to be 007. They've been talking about that for years. I kind nice of would like 007 to be a POC. Jamie Foxx. They should have Jamie Foxx be... Jimmy They're kind Fox of self-righteous weird. about making sure James Bond is like British and or from the the Isles. Yeah, well, Idris Elba is. British has people of color. <laughs> I know. Well, no, I'm not, I'm saying that's why Jamie Foxx, they'd probably be like, no. Oh, no. Yeah, I was just joking because Jamie Foxx does a lot of shitty movies. Cool. All right, let's move on. Yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to move into part four. This is our fun and nonsensical yeah. part. We are bringing back Petard trivia. We have the undefeated Mo 
Yeah. In her own mind. Woo. Her buzzard is going to go like this. Ding, ding, ding. And we have the on and off again champion, number one contender. Two-time champion. Two-time two champion. Two-time. Mm-hmm. Two-time, many-time number one contender, Drew. His buzzer's going to go like this. King in the north. That's uh, hard. Okay, good luck with that, sir. Yep. I'm going to win. Question number one. Closest answer. Okay, I'm, I think almost all of these will be closest answer, but the first few are definitely going to be closest answer. Question number one. Closest answer will get the point. How many times does David rewind and listen to uh, Julia giving her apologize for the past kick in the north it was pretty fast wasn't it mo three three times that is not the right answer mo would you like to come in for the steal four times 14 times so mo's gonna get that point 14 yeah it played over and over again again and she's like when she's like it's nothing to apologize about it's nothing to apologize about okay i was thinking of the wrong section all right mo all right mo that's fine you prices righted me live with yourself one dollar, Bob. Okay, question number two. Closest answer will get this point. The The general answer was given in the pilot. A more specific answer could have been found online. Okay. What type of gun does David carry? King of the North. Drew. Uh, Glock 7mm? That is worthy of a point. Mo, can you steal with a more precise answer? Uh, was it a Smith & Wesson? It was definitely not. It was a Glock 17, but it doesn't say it, it, he did. He did ask for his Glock and then and then gun nerds went on there and made sure that it, we all know it's Glock 17. So we are tied up one one moving into question number three. Jimbo, I'll ask you a gun question because you probably know when they say seven millimeter. What does that even refer to? Size of the bullet. Oh, OK, cool. Mo, I could have asked you. I'm actually think I think I'm going to learn how to use a gun. You should. Sure. I live in a state where it's like kind of, oh, they have like, it's open. They're open to it. A lot of, you have, you, they have concealed carry here. And if the revolution comes knocking at my doorstep, I'm not just going to be some softy liberal who's like not nice. ready to defend herself. Mm-hmm. Good for so, you, Mo. Come for me, MAGA. Come for me. Statistics do not say that is how you're going to be used. Okay. I am picturing well, get a, something. Get a wrist really rocket great. too, in case you run out of bullets. During a what? The apocalypse. A wrist rocket? Oh, what's that? <laughs> it's a thing that goes on your wrist and you pull it back and you can fire off rocks. rocks. Oh, great. At a great. very high okay, cool. rate, like a, like, a, like a bullet. Cool. Ready for one it. One to one. One to one. Question number three. Are you guys curious for the seven day or the 20 day, 28 day ratings? Ratings? How do you get ratings? Netflix doesn't release their analytics. Because this, it was not a Netflix show. This was a BBC show. In the UK, we already mentioned this was the, the, most popular show in the last decade in the first seven days, how many people watched and I will take the answer in millions. How many millions of people watched episode one? Ding, ding, ding. Mo. And people in the UK or in general in the world? Uh, when it was released in the UK. So uh, it would, it wasn't released in the U S although I guess some people may have been able to stream it on UK sources. Okay. I'm going to say, 30 million. That is not the correct answer. Drew, would you like to come in for the steal? King in the North. Yes, Drew. Moe style? Or am I going Moe style? 31 million. Oh my God. Moe's going to get that point. Okay. Only 23 <laughs> million people in the UK watch the World Cup. The UK uh, only has like 60 million people in it. I was literally going to Google how many people are in the UK. I was going to do that too, except it's cheating, Mo. So I was like, I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, I okay, didn't do so it, but ten... I'm doing it right now. How many people this live in bullshit. 66 million? Why am I punished million? for like shitty? That's your fault, Drew. The Super Bowl only gets like 30 or 40 million, and America has 300 million people. Okay, so if there's so anyways, 60 million, I'm going to say 10 million then. Uh, one, one in six people saw it. 10.4, yes. That is an insane amount. One in six people watched That's this. That's crazy. Although maybe some of them may have watched it twice, but yeah. All right, Mo just took a lead. Question number four. Okay, so people in the UK do not know how to pronounce the word ma'am. They, like David, he prefers to say mum. How many times does David say <laughs> mum in the pilot? You counted that? Did someone no, count it on the internet Wikipedia for you? Fact. It's on IMDb. I, I, I found the script and I, and I word found it. Oh, man. Ugh. King of the North. Like, yes, Drew. If you're within 
Five. I'll give you. I will take away Mo's chance to what? steal it. Good. That's a good rule. You should have said that before. Shush. He's the quiz I master. <laughs> Shush. You're interrupting my concentration. Um, my recollection. Sh- there should be a time limit here. Yeah, there is a time limit. Okay, Drew, you have five seconds to to give an answer. Thirty-five times. Drew's gonna get that point. It's thirty-seven. Whoa. Oh, that was so annoying. Dude. In fact, that should have been a low point. I can't believe I forgot to bring that up as a low point. Mom. Mom. His his thick accent really comes through. I don't think he has it that thick in Game of Thrones. He doesn't. He has his natural Scottish accent in the bodyguard. And he had uh, most of the people in um, the Game of Thrones, they use a northern English accent. Here it comes. Here it comes. Question number five. And, you know, it, this is going to be a debate question. All right. Because we already talked about these other ones. All right, so Julia is called a sociopath by her employee. I think her name was Shalene or something. Anyway, I can't, I can't remember her name. But the, the, her employee that, that was fired, he, she calls Julia a sociopath. Based on the pilot, is Julia a sociopath? So yes or no, and then you get 20-second explanation. King of the North. Yes, Drew. No, she's not a sociopath. She has a clear um, – like when she talks about the reason that she became a public servant – you know, she does have a moral vision. She does have grounding. She just doesn't, like, her employee doesn't agree with her. She thinks that she's money hungry. But her employee is also, like, spurned, you know? So she does not have a clear path. She is bitter. And the Home Secretary is not a sociopath. She just has different values than either David Butt or the employee. All right, Mel, you need to argue why she is a sociopath to steal this point and win this competition and remain undefeated in your mind. <laughs> I feel like all politicians have to be sociopaths because you have to be narcissistic and think that somehow you have the power and the wisdom to make those hard decisions that other people can't make. Um, so I would say Julia definitely demonstrates that the fact that she can be so two faced in the way she like, you know, portrays her humanistic side with David and then goes on camera and says, things that have really great implications for the lives of many people. And the fact that she doesn't even consider that David just came back from war and could be traumatized. She kind of thanks him half ass for his service, but in a very like robotic and heartless way. And when he finally kind of tries to reveal right, the well, fact, you, you are cut seconds, off on time. Like, yeah. And yeah, when, yeah, and when he tries to reveal off. the fact that he might, you know, come from a different place because he served, when he asks the question about the Middle East, she shuts his shit down right away because he questions her power. She's a narcissist and a sociopath. Okay, I'm 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 gonna give Mo that point. Um, <sighs> I think I think she is a sociopath in the, the, in hell, the pilot. Jimbo, you're the one who like always holds us to these like freaking uh, psychological definitions, man. A sociopath, sociopath is someone that lacks feelings. She's banging that one dude just to take advantage of him. The other, the other politician guy. Yeah, dude, she's totally using David. She's using everyone. Dude. And she's I, politician. I so think extreme not- antisocial attitudes and behavior and a lack of conscience. The lack of conscience. There's a lack of, of empathy as well. And I think narcissism has is like really interwoven with sociopathology, like visions of grandeur. She seems like a morally grounded person. It just kind of seems like her morals are not those shared by the people who watch the show or us, Listen, apparently. Jimbo made his decision, right? Mo is uh, oh, undefeated. Oh, yeah. Now, now you're Mo on Jimbo's undefeated. side. Now Mo's like, shush, the Quizmaster spoke. <laughs> Drew, you'll get your chance again next week. All right, so Mo is, is going home with another Petard trivia win. She will remain undefeated in her mind. Are you dabbing? <laughs> Yeah, okay, next week we're doing sex education. We would like to thank Jake Drew for the intro, outro music. Contact him. Links in the show notes. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We can continue these discussions. I would love for you guys to be a part of our community. We can continue these discussions either on our website or on the Facebook group. Let's uh, let's talk about these privacy and um, the cost of human life and war and whether Julia is a sociopath. Shop talk. So I got a new job. I'm gonna yeah. Mo's hungry. Go, yeah, go, you know, go grab your food, Mo. Um, I I have a new job. Going back to teaching. Hopefully, it does not destroy my, you know, my total well being in life. But uh, you said it's eleventh like grade. Eleventh, twelfth grade, and I have an honors class. So hopefully, that's not too much work either. We'll, we'll see. Honors. 
Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Supposedly, it's the same as that content, just a little more rigorous. Overachievers. Okay, I'm going to heat up my super quick. I'll be back. Yeah. There you go. That'll be interesting. What's on the syllabus? What are they having you teach? Do you know yet? I haven't gone in yet. Supposedly, they do thematic units, and supposedly, the the each grade level works together and shares resources, and they kind of come up with, like, big question theme, and mm-hmm. then they all have a variety of texts and things that they can use to get at that question so you get to choose what books you're going to use or like what it seems it seems like i have a decent amount of freedom with that oh be nice man you know it's very cool uh what's the daycare situation gonna go like with jamie um won't have to worry about it until the fall and then um who knows all right that's great news man petard uh, salute to you. Yeah, it's we got. Well, yeah, we had that. We'll add that. That'll be a new part. I'm still sick, so kind of on the upswing. But you know, uh, we might strike. We might not in my school district. Oh, you haven't. You, you didn't strike. Well, they uh, the union voted to strike, and then the superintendent kicked it over to the division of labor. Division of labor gets ten days to decide whether they're, they'll intercede. So we voted to strike. Uh, a week ago from Tuesday, they brought the Division of Labor in a week ago from today. Um, and so it's been on, like, the Division of Labor's table for a while. So, but all this weird, sketchy shit's happening where they're doing an extra bargaining session tonight. But they're also, like, uh, going under the table to try and find substitutes and registered nurses. And they're offering big pay hikes to subs and stuff. So... It is what it is. DP, like Denver, I am going to strike. I'm not a member of the union, but I'll support it. Okay. Teachers unions are not my friend. Freakonomics has been doing this sports series where they've done just a ton of episodes related to sports. And they talked a a little bit about the players associations and kind of how NCAA athletes and athletes in general are exploited and how the owners make so much profits versus the players and most players have short careers and they're really, you know, just being exploited kind of a, like a lot. People you never hear about. The very elite players don't get exploited, but the ones like everyone else. I would still want to see like what the profit margin with LeBron James is. He's making a ton of money, but like how much money did the Cleveland Cavaliers make in their merchandise in their ticket sales? And like they their actually boxes lost money one, one year. Yeah, the year they went to the finals, they actually lost money as an or- an organization. Why? Because they got fined so much because they went over the salary cap. Yeah, oh, that's a good point. But uh, since we're kind of talk- talking about LeBron, LeBron is actually severely underpaid for what he to get what oh, he yeah. like brings to the team. For what he brings yeah. to the team, yeah. Well, yeah, and like the salary cap restricts it. He's not he's not being paid on the open market. He's being paid no, exactly. He's being paid the maximum amount that you can pay a free agent, not someone who's been on a team for like five years, but that's still just the maximum amount that's determined by the NBA salary cap. That's not a free market value. Yeah. And even, and even like your average player that gets drafted and only stays in the league for three years, they're not being paid that well either because they are easily replaced by another player that's going to be drafted next year or the year afterwards. And then all the NCAA and all the NCAA athletes aren't paid anything. They're supposedly given an education that they're not able to actually get while they're an athlete. So, <laughs> oh yeah, NCAA is the biggest scam in the history of scams, man. Like, there's a really cool book called I read called Forty Million Dollar Slaves, which does talk about the bullshit that is um, professional sports. But the NCAA, like, that's the thing. Like, maybe the Cavs operated at a loss, but like these NCAA schools that participate in like big five sports and shit. They make so much fucking money and they, yeah, they just like those guys tear their ACLs. and They don't give a fuck. Yeah. And the coaches get paid crazy amounts. Like the, they, they are compared the salary gain of coaches in the NCAA over the last, I, I can't remember the exact stats, but it was something like 1100% increase in pay. Wow. Like over like 20 or 30 years. <laughs> yeah. What a scam. So yeah, I mean the coaches like the coaches get a huge chunk of the money, and I mean there are some good things that go to it. You know, some of that money goes to research. Some of that, I mean, that money funds all the sports that don't 
bring in big crowds, like most of the women's sports, most of like your weird sports that people don't watch, like maybe bowling and in track and field and things like that. I mean, there, yeah, you can't like eliminate what, what race, how race plays a part in that dynamic. Like you can't deny it. Like how many, how many, how many like people of color or black people own teams? How many people are actually in that position? Not that many. I I can think of two, but yeah, I don't think it's that many. Can well, how many like teams are? Can you think of owned by white people? That the players are mostly white. No, no. Like Jimbo's like I can think of two teams that are owned by black people or like people of color. Flip that and think how many professional sports teams you know that are owned by white people. I mean, I, I could probably think of at least ten owned. I can think of twenty nine NFL teams. <laughs> yeah. Can you really like you like you can verify all of their names? Y- yes. Well, I I don't know them by name, but I know what that they look like, like there's only one NFL team that has a dude who's part. Um, I'm trying to remember because he's British, but he also is of Saudi descent. I believe it's the guy who owns um, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but he also owns um, Manchester United. But he is the only owner of color in the NFL. The only one. Well, the only majority owner. Wow. Wow. That's yeah, it's just not fair. Oh, and then also, um, I also happen to notice one from that same book. Michael Jordan is the only um, owner of color in the NBA. So he's, he's one of mine. The other one is Magic Johnson, owner of the Dodgers. Well, yeah. Is he a majority owner or is he like own a stake? He owns it. Yeah, he owns a significant amount. So these are like three different sports. So they're like representing probably the only – POC in that entire sport. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, these sports are worth like billions of dollars, and there's only maybe a handful of people of color that are billionaires, also. It's reflective of society. All right, I'm going to go. Enjoy that soup so and that spicy. victory. I can't wait. My sinuses have been all weird. Yeah, the, that was a spicy win. I, I agree. <laughs> exactly. Mo, lead us right. out. Every day we hoistlin', Mo out. Every day we're hoistling, Drew out. Every day we're hoistling, Jimbo out.